All right, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Today we're going to cover verses 12 through 15. I love this section. John is addressing here three different groups of people and has some interesting things to say to them. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you bless this time in your word, that you'd speak to our hearts once again, that you would enlighten and illuminate us as we study this passage together, Lord. We've been talking a lot about the light, walking in the light as you are in the light. We just ask you to bless this study now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so one of the major themes that John has been dealing with in this epistle is being in him or not in him. And again, that was uh, before we even started this study. My New Year's message was in him in the new year. And so John is really emphasizing what it looks like to be in him. To walk in the light as he is in the light. And uh, how to tell if someone is in him or not in him. And of course, first and foremost, he gives that information not so that we can try to remove the splinter from someone else's eye, but so that we can remove the log from our own to uh, practice self-examination. To be objective. It's very difficult to be objective when it comes to examining yourself, isn't it? It's much easier to examine everybody else. Right? And so God's giving us help here in his word to shine the light, shine his light into our lives and see where we really stand with God. Not because God is looking for any and every opportunity to condemn us. He's looking for any and every opportunity to uplift us and encourage us and keep us on the straight and narrow path. So he begins here, I write to you little children, or we've seen in some translations it's dear children. But what we see here that John, and again, he's had some pretty strong words that we looked at last week. And he has used the terminology that if, you know, someone says he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And he's used that kind of terminology several times that if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. That's strong language. And so he's trying to temper it with some expressing his love for his spiritual children and that's a good lesson for us to follow. It's the old Mary Poppins line, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? And so we find, yes, oftentimes, John, the other writers of the New Testament, Jesus himself would temper their stronger words with words of encouragement, words of love, especially when it comes to their own, God's own children. Jesus was pretty hard on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the hypocrites, who were the false spiritual leaders of Israel. But when it comes to the everyday garden variety sinner, God is full of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness if we will just humble ourselves before him and confess our sins. So dear children or little children, I write to you because your sins 
are forgiven. So after a series of heavy statements, John now wants to encourage his readers. And so there's a couple reasons that he's writing to them. One is to remind them because we see you know, a good amount of repetitiveness in this epistle where John is saying the same thing in several different ways. First of all, again, to remind. We, that was a theme that we looked at in Peter's epistles, First and Second Peter, that much of teaching... See, there's, there's one line of thinking in the church today and probably has been there from the beginning, and it's one of the reasons we've seen the rise of so many different cult groups. One line of thinking is that it's the job of a preacher, teacher, pastor to come up with new stuff. I don't agree with that. There's some clear warnings in both the end of the Old Testament and the end of the New Testament about adding to or taking away from the Word of God. And Peter also wrote that no scripture is of private interpretation. In other words, you can't come up with your own unique, exotic way of interpreting a scripture that's totally different from the way everybody else has been interpreting it for thousands of years. But there is that one line of thinking in the church that, hey man, you've got to come up with something new and exotic and different that nobody's ever heard before. And I would say if, that, if you find that, run from it as fast as you can. The other line of thinking is that the primary job of a preacher, pastor, teacher is to remind people of that which God has already spoken. And so we see that if John saw the necessity of doing that and Peter saw the necessity of doing that and even Jesus did that because he was constantly reminding people of passages from the Old Testament. So one of the reasons John is writing these things, I write to you little children or dear children because your sins are forgiven. Now that's not like that's new information to his readers. That was the first thing that they heard from the mouth of John and Peter and the other apostles is because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his blood shed on the cross of Calvary in which he made atonement for the sins of the world. He is your redeemer. He bought you back out of sin and death. They already knew this. So why is John telling them once again, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven, to remind them. Because guess who's constantly trying to tell you they're not? You know what I'm talking about? Do you ever hear that voice from the enemy? Really? You're asking God for forgiveness for that again? Well, you're out of forgiveness, buddy. He's not going to forgive you this time. You ever heard that voice? That's the devil. And so we need to be reminded because he is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan will bring condemnation, attempt to heap condemnation upon you. God does not do that. He will convict you of sin. But that's because he loves you. The devil hates you. He wants to condemn you. He wants you to feel condemned. He wants you to feel unforgiven, beat down, hopeless, and helpless. And so John is lovingly reminding them after first telling them, hey man, if you're a believer, you're not supposed to sin. Well, but if you do, we have an advocate, we have a defense attorney, we have Jesus to plead our case before God. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a nice reminder here from John, hey, I write to you little children, my dear children, because your sins are forgiven. 
Don't forget that. That's important. Because the devil was constantly trying to tell you that they're not. Colossians 2.13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive. So you were dead. You were being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you. How many trespasses? All. All. But we move on here. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, or one translation reads, on account of his name. You see, it's only because of the name of Jesus. Yeshua. God is our salvation. Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. It's only for his name's sake. It's for his glory that we're forgiven. Did you know that? It's not because we're so great. He loves us. It's, it's hard to understand and imagine how much he loves us in our sinful state. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But ultimately, it's for his name's sake and on account of his name. It's only because of the name of Jesus. Matthew 9, 5 and 6. Jesus says, this is the story of the, uh, of the man who was paralyzed. He was a paralytic. He heals him. The Pharisees are critical. And so, well, actually, first of all, he tells him his sins are forgiven. And that's what brings the criticism. Is like, who are you, Jesus, to tell people their sins are forgiven? And so he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk? So he's already told the man, your sins are forgiven, because he knew the heart of the man. He knew that the man was a repentant sinner. And he's setting the stage here for not only his spiritual healing, his physical healing. It pushes the buttons of the Pharisees. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know, you Pharisees, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And of course, he did. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. It's his namesake. That's on account of his name. Acts 4.12, there is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other. There are those out there today that will tell you that all paths lead to heaven, right? Are there many paths? It doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something. There is, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, or but by me. So he reminds them, and that would include us because we're also God's little children, God's dear children. He reminds us, first of all, that our sins are forgiven, and then he also reminds us that it's for his name's sake or on account of his name. Our sins are not forgiven because we deserve it. Our sins are not forgiven because we've managed to be good enough to be pleasing in God's sight. Quite the opposite. And of course, that's why, you've heard me say this before, there's probably no other name on the planet so severely abused 
as the name of Jesus. Would you agree? Probably the number one most popular swear word. They recently came out with a, I think it was Marvel, I'm not positive, but there was a comic book about Jesus mocking him, blaspheming him. There's always some new form of mockery and blasphemy being poured out on our Savior. And yet if you do that to some of these other so-called religious leaders, you could be in big trouble, right? You can do or say anything you want about Jesus, but don't you dare attack certain other unnamed religious leaders because you could wind up in jail, you could wind up being beaten, murdered. But you can say anything you want about Jesus. Why is that? Because Satan has focused a tremendous amount of his time and energy on defaming the name of Christ for this very reason. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, on account of his name. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Therefore, it makes absolute perfect sense that Satan would do everything possible to defame and shame the name of Jesus. Right? And by the way, for those who try to be politically or spiritually correct and not use his name and speak of God in very general terms, how's anybody going to get saved if Jesus' name is the only one that can save you and you're afraid to say his name? That's a problem, isn't it? All right, verse 13. I write to you fathers, because you've known him who's from the beginning. The fathers, men in the church. This is literal, of course, because most of the men in the church were in our fathers. But, but really, men in the church like John, who were spiritual fathers in the faith. Elders, leaders, these are the individuals that he's addressing here. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him. And so these fathers are those who have been believers for a length of time and as such were uh, more mature in the faith. The implication here is that he expects them to watch over the younger members of the flock. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And this is echoing John's words from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you have known him who is from the beginning. They've known Jesus, not just the man, but the Creator, our God. Jesus is God. He is fully God and fully man. I write to you because you've known him who is from the beginning. And so he's acknowledging them as mature believers, and he's addressing them as a specific group. But then he moves on to the young men. I write to you young men. These, they were most likely younger chronologically, you know, biologically, and spiritually. Age doesn't always equate with spiritual maturity or lack thereof. Especially in times when the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully and we're seeing a, a fresh uh, move of the Spirit, a revival. Uh, the most recent one, I believe, being the Jesus movement. A lot of the guys now that are my age and that realm started out in ministry in their, in their late teens. Greg Laurie started his church when he was 19 years old. So, age doesn't always equate with spiritual maturity or lack thereof. As in the case of Timothy, Paul even wrote to Timothy to encourage him because apparently people were giving a hard time because of his youth. 
1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So he's writing to the young men who may not be as far along in their faith as these fathers, but look at this commendation that he gives them. Because you have overcome the wicked one or the evil one. So they weren't yet deemed spiritual fathers in the church, but these young men had exhibited a level of Christian maturity with regards to overcoming the evil one. Very important. In fact, uh, that was part of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 13. Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Part of that prayer, in fact, the, the end, the tag on this, what we call the Lord's Prayer, was this part here. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so Jesus, in teaching the disciples how to pray, and again, this wasn't supposed to be some rote, memorized, word-for-word -word prayer that they would just repeat over and over again. Jesus spoke against vain repetition in prayer, but it was a model. It was an example of how to pray. And part of that, that starts off, Our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. It starts by acknowledging God and acknowledging him as holy. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so forth. And then at the end, acknowledging that we are to look to God as our covering and our protection against the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Put a hedge of protection around us, if you will. That we, we shouldn't be so prideful and arrogant and haughty as to think we can take on the devil without God's help. We've talked about this before in the book of Jude where uh, M Michael the archangel had a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses and Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. You can take that to the bank, can't you? Now when you say, I rebuke you, the devil just might say, well, who do you think you are? I know all your dirty little secrets, buddy. You're not pushing me around. But when you say the Lord rebuke you, the devil can't come back against that, can he? And so these young men are commended by John because they've overcome the wicked one, the evil one. These young men in the church had learned how to uh, put on the full armor of God. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 6. In the last part, verse 16, above all, Paul writes, taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So these young men had learned how to put on the full armor of God. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, I heard an example once by a, by a pastor. Uh, the difference between actually kissing your wife and just looking at her across the room and just, you know, I kiss you in the name of the Lord. <laughs> and it's like, what's more powerful in overcoming evil than just saying the words is doing the deeds, you see. That's what pushes out the darkness. It's not your words, it's your deeds. These young men were overcomers. They were living a lifestyle of good works, not in order to be saved, but because they were saved. They learned that you overcome the evil one by walking uprightly before the Lord, walking in righteousness, doing good, 
in the name of the Lord. So then he addresses the little children. Really, we come full circle because here this John is really addressing the whole flock. Little children. I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father. Kind of like what he just said to the, um, the fathers. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him. I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father. There's no sense in writing a spiritual letter to those who have no knowledge of God, right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. I'm writing to you guys because you've known the Father and therefore you should be able to understand what I'm saying. No sense writing a spiritual letter to those who have no knowledge of God. John's goal here is that his dear children will continue to know the Father, continue to walk in the light. Third John 1, 3, he writes, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. And that's the goal. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? But it's not just a one-time deal. There's an initial encounter with God when we are converted. We are born again by the Spirit of God. But then there's an ongoing process, and that's really been the major theme in this book so far, is just walking in the light, walking in the truth, continuing on. That's the goal. So much of what we call evangelism uh, is really focused on a one-time situational experience, getting people to come forward. My buddy Brian Davis, how many of you know Brian? He's preached here a number of times. I love Brian. And that's one of his uh, little... And burrs in his saddle, if you will, is this idea that so much of what we call conversion is, is uh, focused on this come forward experience. Now, I think it's valid. I've done it myself more than once. I think it's important to make a public statement of faith in Christ. And that's biblical. Jesus uh, called people out to do that. When he called his disciples, he called them publicly. They were fishing. They were in their boats on the Sea of Galilee. He called them to, to drop their nets and come follow him. Whenever anybody came secretly, it was because they did it, not Jesus. He challenged people publicly to make a commitment. Nicodemus came under cover of darkness, didn't he? But Jesus called him right out in front of God and everybody. The goal is not just simply a one-time experience, although there, that's important to be able to point at some event in your life that you can recognize where, yeah, I made a commitment to Christ. I made a decision to follow Christ. But it's not just a one-time deal. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifelong pursuit. The goal is to continue to walk in the light, to walk in the truth. And so John said, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. That was John's, probably his number one burden for the flock of God, the body of Christ, was to make sure that his little children continued to know God, to walk in the light, to walk in the truth. Second John 1, 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So, okay, you transgress. We do, Christians, we still sin. We talked about this last week, not because we want to, it's a struggle. It's a battle. Lifelong battle. The flesh versus the spirit. But whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, 
who does not live in the doctrine of Christ, you can transgress, you can confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you transgress and continue to transgress, knowingly, willingly, making no effort to make things right with God, then he says that person does not have God. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ, again, that doesn't say that he or she is going to be perfect, but practicing a lifestyle of abiding in the doctrine of Christ, living in the doctrine of Christ, walking in the light, walking in the truth. And when we do stumble, as quickly as possible, we confess our sins, we repent, and we get back up and we keep going. Of course, the enemy tries to convince people, well, you've blown it now, man. You might as well just go for it because there's no hope for you now. It's all over. Again, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the enemy. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So now in verse 14, again, Speaking of John kind of saying the same thing several different times, several different ways. I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. Well, John, you just said that. So he's reiterating it. And then he says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong. So with the fathers, it's like just keep on keeping on. You guys are the church fathers, the spiritual leaders. You've known him who's from the beginning. The charge to the fathers basically remains the same. But now, with the young men, he adds a little something here. Or maybe, again, he's saying the same thing in a different way. You've overcome the evil one. Here he says, I'm writing to you because you're strong. Really, John? Well, if I'm strong, why do you need to write to me? So that you will stay strong. Get it? I went to church once. Why do I need to go again? Right? I told my wife I loved her 20 years ago when we got married. Why do I need to say it again? Silly, isn't it? The greatest assets of young men, by the way, and I think that's one of the things embedded here, what are the greatest assets of young men? Their strength, their energy, their motivation. I was just thinking back on the early days of this church. All the activities, all the things that we did. And we've tapered off some since then. And we need more young men to rise up and do those things that I once did and others once did. Because honestly, when you get older, you start running out of strength and energy and motivation. The church always has and always will need young men. Now, we talk a lot about millennials. Maybe we're a little unfair at times. I don't know. Probably not, actually. <laughs> but I remember back when I first came, I received Christ as a young boy, but I rededicated my life to the Lord more than once. But probably the one that really triggered my service to God in ministry uh, as I moved, transitioned from uh, teens into adulthood, my senior year, 17 years of age, recommitted my life, and it still took me about another year to get fully on track, to be honest. But even at that point, 
I was highly motivated. I was energized. I spearheaded a youth choir in our church. Now, of course, we brought in some adult leaders, but I was the one who really initiated, instigated it, and got it going. We had a, a little youth choir in our Baptist church there in El Segundo, California. We began to go out and sing in other Baptist churches. And out of that, we formed a trio, which became my group, Phoenix Sunshine. But, you know, my cousin Glenn and I, we were the same age. I'd moved in with him and his family after my mother died. We, would, we went out and we staged Christian concerts and parks, and we would go down to the Redondo Beach Pier and witness. I would take my guitar. We'd hand out tracks. I mean, we were just motivated and energized, and we had the strength to do it. That just became our everything. As teenagers, we just talked about how age does not necessarily equate to spiritual maturity. And again, even uh, youthful zeal does not necessarily equate to spiritual maturity. But there certainly was a desire, not just on my part, but many young people in that time period of the Jesus movement who just became, their entire focus became preaching the gospel, winning the lost, and we need that. We've always needed it in the church, and we always will. By the way, all the uh, apostles and disciples that Jesus chose were young men. He didn't go looking for some wise old sages. And again, we need the wise old sages, too. But the wise old sages would not have been prepared to follow Jesus all around the rocky hill country of Israel for three years and sleep on a rock. Right? How many of you old guys out there today, myself included, want to go sleep on a rock? Now, we don't mind standing on the rock, right? But sleeping on the rock is another story. I remember one time we went down, we were invited by the Baptist Student Union in Tucson, Arizona, to go do an outreach on the beach at Rocky Point, which, by the way, in the early 70s, Rocky Point was a beach. That was it. Puerto Penasco, how many of you heard of that? Big resort area today. There wasn't any resort there in 1972. I'll tell you that. And we pitched a tent and we slept on the beach and we used a generator to play music. And there was young students from uh, the University of Arizona and we were young and no problem sleeping on the beach in the sand. And it got pretty cold down there during spring break, I'll have to tell you. It wasn't that warm at night. All the young guys at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa... Pastor Chuck was their spiritual father, just like John, the spiritual father writing this letter and the other fathers to which he wrote. But all these young guys that God was raising up, full of strength and energy and motivation. Then there was Chris Rivera. I didn't see Chris here today, but Chris was one of those early people. Randy Lucero, who now has a great church in Greer, South Carolina. Carl Peterson, who's here this morning. Yes, we were all young once. Every quote, Jesus movement has been spearheaded by young men. Guided and directed and mentored by older men. It's kind of like, you know, you could have a beautiful car, but if the motor is shot, you're not going anywhere, right? And so, you, you know, hopefully you have an intelligent, wise, trained driver behind the wheel, but you need a powerful motor if that car is going to go anywhere. The powerful motor is the strength and energy and motivation of young men and women. That's why I mentioned last week we need to have a goal. We need to pray that God would 
bring more younger people into the church, more young families, more children for Sunday school, because they are the future of the church. Barring the rapture, which I don't want to bar, and I hope happens soon, we might not be around forever. We won't be around forever. The other thing that he says here, because you are strong and the word of God abides or lives in you. And yet, what do we, we have a big movement today within the church to set aside the word of God and just go with feelings and emotions. Well, doctrine is so divisive, you know. We just want to have peace and harmony and unity. Uh, it's just kind of like that uh, Ocasio-Cortez lady. She says, we need to be less focused on facts and information and more focused on what is morally right. And, of course, that means what she considers to be morally right. But what you find more and more with those on the liberal side of the equation, we don't want to hear your facts. Well, you know what? My facts are written down in the Holy Bible. You know, when uh, the Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen was testifying before members of the Senate, and she presented the facts on the crisis on the border, the southern border, Nancy Pelosi said, I don't believe your facts. And that's what you're seeing more and more. But folks, I'm warning you, it's not just in the secular world. It's also creeping into the church. People don't want to hear facts, the truth. They want to hear what makes them feel good. They want to hear what comports with what they already believe. That's why when you talk about things like abortion... Even some who identify as Christians get offended. Really? Pro-life offends you? God is pro-life. Who's pro-death? The devil. And one of his favorite religions, which is the fastest growing religion in the world, by some accounts. And I've told you this before. You can tell who's of God and who isn't. John's giving us the facts here, how do you tell if somebody knows God or doesn't know God? Well, I'm going to add to what John says here and tell you that you can tell somebody's of God or not of God because they're either pro-life or pro-death. If you're pro-death, you're not of God. God is the author of life. He's not the author of death. Satan is the author of death. And you know what? If you don't believe the way I believe, then I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Again, where do we hear that coming from? Not from the Christians, not from the conservatives. It's coming from the other side. We want peace and unity and harmony, and we're willing to kill to get it. Right? If you don't agree with us, then we can justifiably hate you and kill you. Which is, again, is that of God? Absolutely not. All right, sorry for my little political rant, but I'm not really sorry. <laughs> so, you're strong, but that's not all that you need. Young men, yes, strength, energy, motivation, but that needs to be coupled. It needs to go hand in hand 
with the word of God abides or lives in you. Then that strength and energy and motivation can be properly channeled. Again, I've just given you some examples of how that strength and energy and motivation can be improperly channeled by burning down buildings, turning over cars, punching people in the face. That's also something that young men do, using their strength and energy and motivation. So you, they don't have the Word of God in them, therefore they use their strength and energy and motivation in improper ways. Without being founded and grounded in the Word of God, the previously discussed assets can very quickly become your greatest liabilities. So the greatest assets of young men are their strength, their energy, their motivation, but the greatest pitfalls of young men are selfish ambition, conceit, and pride. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Again, which is the exact opposite of what we're seeing in some segments of our society today. Just the opposite. I'm better than you. I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. And unless you decide to be like me, then you're an idiot. And if you're a God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled Christian, you're really an idiot. Do you doubt that that's true? That many people today believe that? Absolutely not. 1 Timothy 3.6. Paul's talking about qualifications for elders, leaders. The fathers that John is addressing here in his epistle should not be a novice or a recent convert. And again, unfortunately, some groups are very quick to elevate people because they're physically attractive they're intelligent, they're charismatic, whatever you. But when you do that, when you lift up a recent convert, a novice, somebody who's not ready, you're setting them up for a fall as well as damaging the church. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. What was the condemnation of the devil? He said, I will be like the Most High, remember? Five I wills of Satan in the book of Isaiah. His pride led to his downfall. So young men, we need the strength, the energy, the motivation, but we need young men who are abiding in the Word of God. The Word of God abides in you, lives in you. Then those strength, that strength and energy and motivation can be properly channeled. But young men need to recognize their pitfalls, as do older men. And notice he reiterates here. He says, you're strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. He, he reiterates that. It might seem that John is stuck in a redundancy here, but again, his MO is to first remind, secondly, to encourage, this is who you are in Christ. And it's helpful. Again, we're not looking for flattery or praise. The Bible says that, you know, that's not a good thing. It can be harmful. We shouldn't be looking for flattery and for praise. But when, like, when people come to me after the service and say, man, that was a great message. I, you know, I don't get all puffed up about it, but I, I find it encouraging. We all need encouragement, don't we? They say it takes 10 positive words of encouragement to make up for one negative. Did you know that? Boy, the negatives really stick with you, don't they? I ran into a guy in a restaurant the other day. 
He recognized me. I didn't know him, but he knew me somehow. I, guess, I think he'd been to the church before. He goes, I know you. You're, you're, you're the craziest preacher I know. And, uh, and I said, well, I guess I'll take that as a compliment. He says, well, 50-50. <laughs> he said that, 50-50. And I will remember that for a long time. You see, so uh, don't give me any 50-50s here, folks. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, right? There's nothing wrong with encouraging one another. We need it. And John's encouraging these young men. Because probably another pitfall for young men who, you know, still have a lot to learn about life and a lot of things to experience, they may be strong and energetic and motivated, but I think young men are probably more easily discouraged than older men. Because older men have been around the block a few times, and we don't, you know, get so disappointed so easily and so quickly. We know what life is all about, been there, done that. And so, again, John doesn't have a whole lot to say at this point to the fathers. They're solid. They've known him who is from the beginning. Just keep on being spiritual fathers to the younger, less mature members of the church. But he really wants to encourage these young men because they can be the church's greatest asset or the church's greatest weakness. You've overcome the wicked one, guys. Good on you. That's what the Aussies say. Good on you, Mike. Verse 15, our last verse for the day. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Wow, this is a biggie. It's the Greek word cosmos. John, who is referring here to that organized system, the world. Okay, now let's clarify something here. The, the physical world was created by God, right? And it is beautiful. It is wonderful. And in Romans chapter 1, it tells us that the creation speaks to us about God. And the stars, his handiwork I see, right? The beauty of creation, there's nothing wrong with loving that because it was created by our loving Heavenly Father. John isn't speaking of the physical world, the biological world. He's speaking about that system, that organized system that is headed up by Satan, the world system, do not love the world. That system that leaves God out of the equation as in, and is in fact a rival to him. To love the world system would be to support Satan's agenda for worldwide domination. That's his goal, you know. So again, how can you tell who's of God and who's not? God is pro-life, Satan's pro-death, but God is also for freedom and liberty. Satan is for world domination. So any person or group of people, we might think of uh, the Nazi regime, World War II, you know, Hirohito in Japan who jumped in, Mussolini, these guys. There have been those down through human history, Alexander the Great, the list goes on and on, who sought for world domination. And in the last days, it will be the Antichrist. And everything we're seeing right now in the physical world is leading up to this. Joe Cano was just talking to me before the service about the latest updates on the microchip industry. And it's just getting closer and closer to the universal mandated implantation of microchips. What they're doing with them right now 
Because they're planting them right in here between the thumb and the forefinger. Revelation chapter 13, the mark of the beast, the right hand of the forehead. Hello? World domination. That's always been Satan's goal from day one. And again, God created this world and everything in it. He is the ruler. He's the master of the universe. But the thing about it is that he is a benevolent, loving, merciful, gracious, heavenly father. And Satan's just the opposite. So to love the world would be to support Satan's agenda for worldwide domination and the establishing of an unchallenged, unrivaled kingdom here on earth. Hence, no more national sovereignty, no more borders, and on and on it goes. No more private industry. And so we have more and more people in our nation promoting an agenda that has failed everywhere in the world that it's been tried. It's called socialism, communism, and by the way, those belief systems are inherently atheistic and ungodly. Hello? Hello? When the communists took over Russia, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, it was illegal to believe in God. Hello? And you don't think that's part of the agenda for these folks? About 20 of them who are going to run for president. You laugh. Uh, let me point to our Congress which was just taken over by that group because too many Americans I don't want to be rude there's a lot of people out there that don't know anything about anything and they think they know everything about everything so okay I'll just say that that's, as, that's all I'm going to say Rush Limbaugh calls him the low information voter that's a good way to say it I have stronger words I could use but I won't all the moral corruption that is bred by a love of this world, you know what I'm talking about? It's simply the byproduct of Satan's real goal, absolute control. When he traps you in some sin, some addiction, whether it's pornography, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and boy, are we getting here in the big promo now for legalized marijuana. And I just saw a New York Times reporter, he's not with him anymore, but he just did a, a heavily researched book on the dangers of marijuana today, the psychological problems that it causes, the health problems that it causes. And here's another mass deception being foisted upon the American people. And then Kamala Harris says, well, it's fun. I think she loves the world. And her own Jamaican father rebuked her for trying to imply that all Jamaicans smoke pot. Because she's half Jamaican, you know. The love of the world, folks. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love the world system whose mastermind is Satan or the things in the world. Anything that is a byproduct of Satan's scheme to destroy the human race and to exert absolute dominion over this planet. Because when you are controlled by the lust of the flesh, then you're in Satan's control. You're under his dominion. Anything that appeals to and stimulates and provokes man's flesh, his sin nature, pornography, greed, materialism, fornication, adultery, mind-altering substances, etc., 
All these come into the category of loving the world and the things that are in it. Man, I just love to get high or drunk. You hear people say that. Kamala Harris just said it. One of our presidential candidates. I love to have relations with anyone or anything, regardless of gender, species, or marital status. That's loving the world and the things. That I love to go to the mall and shoplift. Yeah? I love to go to the mall and drain my bank account dry on all kinds of stuff. I love to read, ha, read, Playboy and Penthouse, right? You don't read those. You drool. You drool and you slobber. If anyone loves the world, John says, the Greek word here, interestingly, is agapao. It's not the same as agape, but it means to be well-pleased, to be contented at or with a thing. So do not be well-pleased or contented with this world and the things that are in it. If anyone does, if anyone is well-pleased and contented at or with a thing in this world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's another one of those strong statements from John. So John is speaking here of a deep sense of love and commitment to this world and the things that are in it. The kind of love that prevents people from turning and following God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now here it is agape. The love of the Father is agape. Affection or benevolence, charity, dear love, that unconditional love. So if the love of the world is in you, the love of the Father, if the agapao is in you, the agape is not in you. It's not possible to love the world and love God at the same time. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Matthew 6.24, And no one can serve two masters. He, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Which is not just materialism. Mammon is demonic in its origins. Attempting to serve both results in being, I believe, lukewarm. Revelation 3.15. Jesus says, I know your works, Laodicea, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, we can't be hot for God, on fire for God, and hot for the world at the same time. 2 Peter 2.20 For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. This is what John is trying to prevent from happening to his little children. Don't get entangled in those things of the world again. You were once, but you can't love the world and love God at the same time. James 4.4 4, Adulterers and adulteresses. He's speaking here spiritually. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or being at war with God? Fighting against God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. From God's perspective, if we are believers, if we as believers are in love with the world, we're committing adultery against him. That's why James uses the terminology adulterers and adulteresses. When we as believers begin to fall in love with this world again as we once were before we got saved, then we are committing spiritual adultery against God. Since we're born in sin, we automatically enter this world in love with it. You know, immediately we begin to covet 
You know, you watch little kids. I had uh, how many? Seven of grandsons together at the beginning of January, right after Christmas. And you'd watch them out, all out there playing. They had all these toys. And they were always fighting over the toys, right? Uh, one kid would go play with it, then the other kid wanted it. If nobody was playing with it, nobody cared. But the minute one of the kids started playing with it, the other kid wanted it, right? We are born into this world. We are automatically in love with it. And so I would think perhaps the greatest challenge we face in this life is falling out of love with the world and falling in love with God. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world. And I think we can probably all find some areas of conviction here. I mean, if, if the things of this world were not enticing, it wouldn't even be an issue, would it? Again, this world system is masterminded by Satan himself. And the things of this world are designed to keep us from loving God. And so this is a great challenge that we must rise up to and work hard at. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love you because you first loved us. Lord, you were the initiator. You pursued us. That's amazing. Lord, because you knew if it was left to us, nothing would ever happen. You reached out. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. You made the first move. And now we have responded, many in this room, by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. You've called us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. You are pro-life, Father. And we thank you that you've done that. We thank you that we can now walk in the light as Christ is in the light. We can have fellowship with you and with one another. Father, help us to recognize this great challenge that we face. John's goal here, Lord, is that every one of your dear children would continue to know you, continue to follow you, continue to walk in the light. And we're bombarded every day with temptation. We're bombarded with the things of this world and this world system masterminded by Satan himself. And all these things are designed to draw us away from you. Father, we ask you to give us strength. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you told us we would know the truth. The truth would set us free. That's why we need to continually be in the truth. Be in your word. Be saturated with it. So the minute the devil tries to lie to us, we will recognize it and reject it immediately. But Lord, those times when we fail, when we fall short, we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us. When we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, as we close now, we pray that those who might need prayer, might need ministry, might need to accept Christ or recommit to Christ or, or come this morning for prayer because there is an area they're struggling with where maybe they are too much in love with this world and they recognize it and they want to be separated from those things which would separate them from you. Lord, those who need the power of your Holy Spirit work in their lives. We just ask you to draw them by your Spirit that they might receive ministry and prayer today. We ask your anointing upon those on the prayer team. And we pray, God, that you would do a mighty work in these closing moments as you have all throughout this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.